Welcome back, everyone. Thanks for fitting the CHP into your schedule. Some more lighthearted fear for everyone. This topic of the eunuchs of China has been on the list going back to 2010, and though not requested by many of you as much as the history of Taiwan or Jinyong or a few others, every now and then someone is asking when the eunuchs will be featured. In this series, and it's going to be a short one, I thought... Let's use the topic of the imperial eunuchs to take a leisurely romp through Chinese history from the Shang Dynasty all the way up to 1924, when the last of the eunuchs were kicked out for good from the Forbidden City in Beijing. Besides the big three eras, when eunuchs made a generous contribution to the demise of the dynasty, uh, namely in the Han, Tang, and Ming, I'll trace their rise and fall throughout Chinese history. And we'll also take a peek at the lives of the 10 or 15 of the most notorious of China's eunuchs who ruined the reputation of all the hundreds of thousands of others who served the emperor and empresses throughout the dynasties. Yuno is the Greek for bed, and okos means to have or hold or, or to guard. To guard the bedchambers. Only a castrated or emasculated man could be trusted to guard the king's harem. Without that ability to procreate, the monarch could sleep well each night, knowing his harem was protected and the royal bloodline would not get fouled by anyone. And all things considered, it would be difficult, if not impossible, for a eunuch to aspire to form his own dynasty. Eunuchs worked for the king. They served the state through their service to the king or emperor or sultan, the ruler who lived in the imperial palace. The eunuch only answered to him. He did not take orders from anyone else. And though their original intention was to guard the emperor's women, eunuchs would also serve as military leaders, envoys, and governors, and in other roles that didn't involve the goings-on in the royal palace. Only the king or emperor could keep eunuchs on their payroll. Them and them alone. It was a sign of their power, and they used their eunuchs to project this power. Aristocrats? They had slaves or servants, but not eunuchs. By sacrificing their sexual organs, eunuchs gave up their ability to impregnate a woman and could not carry on the family line. Their branch of the patrilineal line was terminated. The act of emasculation also brought some degree of shame on his family as well. They would call these eunuchs and their sacrifice chu jia. It means he who leaves the family, he's cast out and can never return home. This term was also applied to monks as well. When you chose the castration route, along with your severed sexual organs, you severed ties with your family and walked away from your most basic Filial responsibilities, no small matter in Chinese culture. And with all these bonds severed, the eunuch would serve his ruler selflessly with no familial strings attached. He belonged to the monarch and served him and his family without any of the complications or demands that family might bring. The ruler became his family, in a manner of speaking, and the way it worked in the imperial palace, sometimes the eunuchs could be counted on and considered more trustworthy than his own blood relatives. Their daily political survival and their fate within the palace system rested solely in the hands of the emperor. They were dependent on him for whatever power or authority they exercised. They were only 
supposed to be servants of the household who, because of their inability to have sexual intercourse with a woman, were trusted throughout the palace, including the inner palace where men other than the emperor were persona non grata. They had an often ferocious duel to the death with their greatest nemesis, the scholarly Confucian officials from the outer palace who ran the bureaucracy of the state. The, by and large, illiterate eunuchs and the scholarly elite of the palace, their epic competition was a theme that never went out of style. In literature, the official histories, and all kinds of TV dramas as well. And as a check to balance the power of these officials, the emperor used his eunuchs well to get what he wanted. The earliest mention of eunuchs goes back to ancient Sumer, 21st century BCE. Assyria and China were some of the earliest empires to institutionalize eunuchs in their society. The Babylonians, the Hittites, they too. So was Ptolemaic Egypt, as well as in the Arab caliphates, and of course, famously in the Ottoman Empire. The Roman and Byzantine empires, they both had a vigorous eunuch culture. Castration as a form of punishment and eunuchs were both mentioned in the Code of Hammurabi, 1754 BCE. In some Assyrian art and alabaster reliefs, you can see what are probably eunuchs, beardless royal attendants. Certain physical traits were universally associated with eunuchs and other castrata. Smooth skin, a lack of facial hair, wide hips, a falsetto voice, gynecomastia. Castration was all over the ancient world as part of all kinds of rituals and ceremonies, political, religious, and cultural. Castration involved removing the testes. Emasculation involved the whole shebang, male sexual organ and testes. Chinese eunuchs had to go the emasculation route. But for the most part, eunuchs, they were an Eastern thing. They appeared in the Roman Empire, but it was really in Asia where eunuch history was overwhelmingly written. Castration was one of the original five punishments, or wuxing, of ancient China, mentioned in the Shu Jing, the Book of Documents. The other four were tattooing the face, cutting off the nose, cutting off a foot or both feet, and death by quartering in various new and innovative ways that people came up with back then. So with China's earliest eunuchs, they were mostly all prisoners captured in battle and convicts. This was much different than later on during the Ming and Qing, where young boys, 10 years old was optimal, and, and not-so-young boys as well, they were lining up to volunteer to undergo this procedure that might garner them a ticket to the big time in the Neiting, or the inner chambers of the royal palace. We're pretty sure eunuchs in Chinese history went back to at least the Shang Dynasty, 17th century to 1046 BCE. When Lady Fu Hao's tomb was discovered in 1976, you might remember her as the wife of King Wu Ding. She was also a military leader and high priestess during the Shang. Among the many artifacts pulled out of this fully intact Shang Dynasty tomb from the 13th century BCE were figurines of eunuchs. And this is the earliest known representation in Chinese history suggesting the existence of eunuchs in China. All these great Shang Dynasty artifacts came from the ruins of Yin, the Yin Shu in Anyang, Henan Province, the most ancient part of Hunan province. 
The oracle bones mention castration as a kind of punishment only. In the western Zhou that followed the dramatic fall of the Shang, there was plenty of evidence that showed eunuchs were in existence as palace guards and servants, and of course, for protecting the king's harem. You might say this was the traditional role that they were always intended to play. If there's anything I hope you take away from this series, it's that of all the eunuchs from the Han to the Qing, for the most part they lived a rather dreary life, performed menial tasks, and as the social outcasts they were, eunuchs ended up being magnets for tragedy, sadness, and disappointment. Yet history has branded them as some of the worst, corrupt, self-serving, conniving, evil lot whose antics led to rivers of blood and the downfall of more than a couple dynasties. We remember the big names, and we'll look at all of them, the Wei Zhongxians and the Li Lianyings. Those guys were just the tip of the tip of the iceberg. We remember them most of all because of their supreme positions at the royal court and the historic havoc they wreaked on China. But by and large, your average eunuch was only a working stiff who just happened to clock in either at the palace or wherever they got sent by the emperor or chief eunuch. Yet these 10 or 15 outrageous eunuchs from four dynasties only, they hijacked the whole saga of eunuchs in Chinese history and turned these often pathetic characters into the vile creatures we've come to know. So we remember the point oh 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 one percent and the rest, not so much. The first eunuch, whose notoriety got written into the official court annals that would follow the demise of each preceding dynasty, was Zhao Gao. We all remember the story about the time the first emperor of China died, Qin Shi Huang. This is where Zhao Gao really stands out. By the way, Zhao Gao, he's the one who gave us the famous Chengyu, or Chinese idiom, Zhi Lu Wei Ma, to call a deer a horse, to intentionally deceive someone. Thank Zhao Gao for that. The thing about Zhao Gao is that he may or may not have been a eunuch. The historical annals said he was, but we'll never know for sure. We remember him well for his starring role of a lifetime as chancellor following Qin Shi Huang's death in Shandong province in September 210 BCE. After the first emperor OD'd on Mercury, it said Zhao Gao took over and by manipulating the young sons of the emperor and killing off anyone who wasn't lined up on his side, he brought China's first imperial dynasty to an ignominious conclusion. The crown prince, Fu Su, now he was old enough to know better and was very close to Qin Shi Huang's loyal general, Meng Tian. And the two of them had their suspicions about what Zhao Gao and the chancellor, Li Si, were up to. And these two, Zhao Gao and Li Si, they tried to scam the royal court, and put their favorite on the throne, who they would control. As the story went, they had Fu Su killed, and Meng Tian too, for good measure. And they put their guy on the throne, and this was Hu Hai, a.k.a. Qin Ar Shi, the second Qin emperor. Hu Hai was in his early 20s, and went along with Li Su and Zhao Gao's plan to seize power in Xianyang, which is modern-day Xi'an, the capital of Shanxi province. You'll see throughout Chinese history, there were two kinds of emperors that gave eunuchs all the tools they needed to seize power. Eunuchs thrived on either young 
are weak emperors, and the younger and weaker, the better. In Qin Shi's case, though 20, 21 years old, he was still young enough to be manipulated. Plus, he was way in over his head, taking over from such a force of nature as his father. So he just let Zhao Gao do whatever he wanted, and one of the things Zhao Gao wanted, after a few years on an unsteady throne, was for Hu Hai to kill himself after this luckless successor to the dynasty founder discovered his loyal eunuch, Zhao Gao, was up to no good. And sure enough, he followed his eunuch's orders and indeed committed suicide at the age of 24. Well, next up after Hu Hai came Qin Wang Ziying, a.k.a. Ziying, the Qin Dynasty's third and final emperor for 46 days. He was the one who finally had Zhao Gao bumped off after three years of palace intrigue. And once Zhao Gao was done in, this mysterious person, Ziying, who historians are still trying to figure out who he was and his relation to the first Qin emperor, he surrendered to Liu Bang, who then went on to found the Han Dynasty. So this conniving, murdering personage from the fall of the Qin, who may or may not have been a eunuch, Sima Qian said he was, he got the ball rolling as far as tarnishing the image of eunuchs. Yeah, good old Zhao Gao. You know, the whole story of the final years of the Qin are so filled with mystery and hearsay. Who's to know what actually happened as far as the story of Zhao Gao and this whole escapade lasting from 210 to 207 BCE? I suppose the stories of eunuchs that many of us are already familiar with concern all the events that happened at the end of the Eastern Han, Tang, and Ming, three of China's greatest dynasties. Eunuchs were like the midwives who assisted in the demolition of the dynasty, and certain events from those times we remember, times when eunuchs were able to gain control of the levers of power and in each case drove the dynasty into the ground. Since antiquity, China has led the world in constructing the most intricate and elaborate timekeeping and astronomical devices. So I wanted to tell you about one luxury watch brand, Atelier Wen. They demonstrate high-quality Chinese design and craftsmanship in a single timepiece. And their watches celebrate Chinese culture and craftsmanship. Atelier Wen works with China's best designers and craftsmen of today to bring their collection of beautiful luxury watches proudly made in China. Atelier Wen's perception watch model draws from the exquisite geometries found in traditional Chinese architecture. Each dial is individually hand-cut by China's only Guilloche master craftsman, Cheng Yutsai, who engineered his rose engine machine himself. Due to its complexity, it takes a master craftsman around eight hours to cut one dial. And there were no guilloche machines in China before, and Master Chung had to figure out how to build one without access to any Western prototypes or drawings. Check out AtelierWen.com to view their collections and to learn more about Chinese watchmaking. You can mention the CHP at checkout to let them know we sent you. That's A-T-E-L-I-E-R-W-E-N dot com to see their impressive collections. The Atelier Wen Perception Watch will make a special gift for yourself or for someone passionate about fine, unique watches. Let's look at the Han Dynasty first. 
As I mentioned, eunuchs have been around since the Shang Dynasty, China's oldest dynasty for which there was a written record of its existence. But it was the Han, or more specifically the Eastern or later Han, that eunuchs perpetrated such an outrageous caper that it brought down the dynasty, which was already cruising for a bruising for a long time anyway. And from this foundation, the repute of China's eunuchs, particularly how they were portrayed in the official histories, went nowhere but down. That was another thing. The ones who wrote all the official histories, there's 24 of them, the Arshus's shirt, these were all written by Confucian scholars, and as I said, there was no love lost between the eunuchs and the Confucianists. These scholars were never going to portray them in a complimentary light. If you had to peg the time when eunuchs transformed from guardians of the harem, the king or the emperor and his entire inner court into participants in the political process with decision-making authority and access to the palace treasury, that'd probably have to be when Han Huan Di was ruling, Emperor Huan of Han. 146 to 168 CE. He's the guy who let them in the back door. I already mentioned the eunuchs loved, loved, loved young emperors. The younger the better. Children if necessary. And an infant was perfect. And if you couldn't get that, at least get a dim-witted one. The first great eunuch disturbance that warranted its own miniseries happened around the midpoint of the 2nd century CE. Now, the Eastern Han fell in 220, so you know from this point forward, it's not going to be a smooth ride for the Liu family. These descendants from Liu Bang, who had once bested Xiangyu in 202 BCE. Yeah, the Han Dynasty had had quite a glorious run up till now. Well, there, there was the whole uh, Wangmang thing, but that happened in the Tang as well, right? Eunuchs have played no small role in Wang Mang's power grab, so we know certainly by then they were doing more than just guarding the harem. Now, I don't want to get sidetracked and start rambling on and on about one of the great stories from ancient Chinese imperial history, so let's just say there was a guy named Liang Qi, who was the crafty, violent, and power-hungry brother to the Empress Dowager. She was okay, but he was quite a scoundrel and plunged the government and the Han Dynasty into a political crisis. Liang Qi ruled with a heavy hand during the reigns of Emperors Shun, Chong, and Zhe. Prior to Emperor Shun was his father, Emperor An. And from An to Zhe, 106 to 146 CE, you had one long carnival of weak and incompetent emperors. That's all it takes. By Shunti, eunuchs were already starting to consolidate some of their newfound gains, like the one in 135 that allowed them to adopt children who they could one day place in positions of power and act as their proxies. Emperor Shun, he's the one who invited the Liang family into the ruling equation, and he'll live to regret that. The Liangs were the family of Emperor Shun's empress. Here for the first time, during Han Emperor Shun, eunuchs began to take on that caricature that would follow them to their end. The instability and distress at the Han court was presided over by Liang Ji until the death of the young Emperor Zhe at the ripe old age of eight. After the usual painful shakeout period, a new emperor was chosen, and this was Han Huan Di, Emperor Huan. 
Emperor Huan was supposed to be another pliant ruler who rubber-stamped anything Liang Qi asked of him. But in 159, 13 years into his 22-year reign, he wised up and conspired with the ones he could trust most, his eunuchs, to launch a coup d'etat. So those eunuchs who were closest to him, there were five, they not only moved fast against Liang Ji and forced him to commit suicide, they went after his whole family too and wiped them out and all of his political allies. And for their invaluable help in overthrowing Liang Ji and his family clique, the eunuchs were essentially given carte blanche by Emperor Huan. And for the balance of his reign that ended in the year 168, he covered for the eunuchs for all their excesses, for the wealth they were amassing and for taking corruption to new heights never seen before. And when someone tapped the emperor on the shoulder and suggested he step in and curb these eunuch excesses, he sided with his eunuchs and whoever it was that opened their mouth, they lived to regret that. The officials at court fought back. There was a battle royale for control of the government that saw a back-and-forth confrontation that led nowhere except down, a direction that had been trending since the beginning of the second century. Finally, 168, Emperor Huan died, and the next one up was Emperor Ling. The eunuchs, having made themselves comfortable during the reign of Xun and now fully institutionalized in Huan's time, weren't going anywhere. And when the biggest challenge to their supremacy came, following the demise of Emperor Huan in 168, the eunuch faction, led by Cao Jie and Wang Fu, got wind of this organized resistance against them and made fast work of their rivals, and the reputation of eunuchs for a ruthlessness that knew no bounds gained some momentum. We'll see in the history of eunuchs in China. Sometimes things got so bad and so out of control with the eunuch hold on power that these, these monikers would come into being to describe the group of the most powerful eunuchs. And during Emperor Ling's time, there were the ten attendants, the Shi Chang Shi. These were the ten, or actually twelve, of the eunuchs closest to Emperor Ling, the most famous of which was Zhang Rang. It had been Emperor Huan who let the eunuchs in the back door to help him sweep away the corrupt and reckless Liang Ji and his family. But now, one emperor later, the eunuchs had infested not only the palace, but were spread out in the provinces as well with relatives, adoptive sons, and allies of these ten attendants, holding various positions that allowed them to soak the population for all they were worth and live a life of wealth and comfort without any fear of penalty or retribution. Finally, the corruption and oppression of the eunuchs under Emperor Ling got so bad, it led to the Yellow Turban Rebellion, 184 to 205. And once you hear about the Yellow Turban Rebellion... You know the Three Kingdoms period is not too far behind. When an upright official named Zhang Jun submitted a sincere memorial to Emperor Ling and pointed to the destructiveness of the eunuchs and their corruption, the emperor, totally under the thumb of the ten attendants, showed them the memorial that Zhang Jun had submitted. And in a scene that will be repeated time and again, the eunuchs who controlled the inner palace promptly arranged for Zhang Jun to be silenced tortured, and duly executed. As I said, all it takes is a pliant fool of an emperor. Han Ling Di was their fool. And as we make our way to the Qing, you'll see time and again, eunuchs were able to rise to the top positions of power 
thanks to their manipulation of some weak, muddle-headed, or child emperor. Emperor Ling was their dupe, and by the time he died, the eunuchs, led by these ten attendants, had a hammerlock on the government and the palace, and they plundered the land and were ruthless with any organized opposition. And their little reign of terror lasted all the way up to the end of Han Ling Di, Emperor Ling, who died in May 189. No matter eunuchs, Confucian officials, Buddhists, or the Taoists, whenever the emperor, you know, who may have been your champion, passed away or was killed, well, you never knew what was going to follow. So when Emperor Ling died, the eunuchs tried to get their prince on the throne, but that didn't work out as planned. The new emperor Shao, an infant, as most all emperors with the name Shao are, well, he had strong backers. His mother, the Empress Dowager He, second emperor's consort to the deceased Emperor Ling, and she had, and she had a brother who served as the head of the military, and this was He Jin. Both of them were the regents for her son, Emperor Shao. And these two, Empress Dowager He and He Jin, they started plotting how to defang the eunuch faction, led by these ten attendants. And just like Lord Varys in Game of Thrones, who always found out everyone's secrets, of course, these ten attendants got wind of this, and in a scene that would be repeated over and over, rather than be stopped in their tracks, they'll get a little slap on the wrist and told to behave. But all the while, they had their knives out and plotted their revenge, which for the eunuchs was just an act of self-preservation. September 189 they had He Jin assassinated. He was decapitated, and his severed head thrown over the palace walls where his followers were camped. And as the famous story goes, his closest officers, including Yuan Shao and Yuan Shu, they went in and carried out a mass slaughter of all eunuchs and whoever else got caught up in their net by mistake. And into all this violent turmoil and power vacuum stepped the warlord, Dong Zhuo. And whenever you hear Dong Zhuo's name, you know Cao Cao and the whole end of the Eastern Han Dynasty is imminent. And if there was ever a time to slip in the old proverbial bookmark, I'd say this is it. From this incident that went down at the tail end of the Han, it spelled the end of the dynasty and the beginning of the poor repute that eunuchs would find themselves in for the remainder of Chinese imperial history. What happened in the Han with the ten attendants in particular showed everyone what these eunuchs were capable of once they gained power. And if the court officials were wary of them before, once they were smashed in 189, well, they vowed never to let these eunuchs rise this high again. But it sure did happen again, and we'll look at more zany eunuch antics next time when we get into the Tang Dynasty. Consider uh, coming back for that. I invite everyone to step right up and subscribe to my Patreon page. Three bucks a month, that's it. Of course, you're welcome to pledge more. How about uh, one less caramel macchiato a month? And earmarking those few bucks to this worthy cause. There's also a PayPal donation center at paypal.me slash chinahistorypodcast if you prefer the one-time-get-it-out-of-the-way option. I'm thankful either way, and believe me, I will thank you personally for your largesse. Okay, enough of this chit-chat. This is Laszlo Montgomery signing off from Los Angeles in the state of confusion, riding out this pandemic just like the rest he is. 
why not consider coming back in a couple weeks' time for another exciting episode of the China History Podcast.